Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. The Walls of Jericho, Joshua 6, 1 through 16. As the people of Israel moved into the land of Canaan, they needed to conquer the city of Jericho. But how would they get past the great walls around the city? The Lord gave Joshua important instructions. He told Joshua to march his army around the city. Some priests would carry the Ark of the Covenant. Other priests would carry trumpets. Joshua and his army would do this every day for six days. On the seventh day, they would march around the city seven times. Then the priests would blow their trumpets and, and all would shout. The Lord promised the walls around the city would fall. The people followed the Lord's instructions. They marched around the city once a day for six days. On the seventh day, they marched around it seven times. Then Joshua told the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Everyone shouted, the walls of Jericho crashed on the ground. The Israelites conquered the city. Good morning, everybody. Hello, my name is Nick. I am the youth pastor here. And today, as you can tell from this wonderful story we just heard, we are going to be talking about Joshua and the Battle of Jericho. And I'm, I'm really going to try my best to resist. Sing, no, I'm not going to resist it. Joshua at the Battle of Jericho, Jericho. I can't, can't, I can't do it anymore. That's such a good song, though. It's been stuck in my head for like a week, and I just had to get it out. I'm done. Okay. It is very difficult to sell me something I don't want. Uh, my wife is the opposite. Anybody who comes to the door to try to sell us something, there's a rule that she's not allowed to answer the door because then we end up with like six months worth of steak in our freezer that we're never going to eat or we'll end up with some sort of security system that doesn't actually work. She's not allowed to answer the door. But I, I don't know. I think maybe I'm too harsh on these people. It's really, really difficult to sell me something that I don't want. I've been to timeshare presentations. I've, I've been tried to, and I just put this face on. It's kind of like this. And every time they try to make a joke, I just sort of double down on it. Like, I really try to use my face to tell them I'm not going to buy this. Probably the most frustrating one ever was we had a guy come to the, they had this whole plan. It was brilliant. It was an evil genius plan. They put this like, like bottle or like vial on our door that said, we'd love to test your water for you. So fill this up and we'll come pick it up and then we'll give you our recommendations. I was like, all right, this is kind of cool. We just moved into a new house. It'd be nice to know the quality of our water. So the guy came, we, we filled it up, we sent it out. And then like a week later, a guy came to our door and it was at like 7.30 at night, which we have children, uh, and we try to put them to bed. We start the bedtime process usually around 8, 8.30. And so, honestly, I don't know. I think I was feeling slightly generous with this guy. I felt like maybe this was a 10 to 15-minute deal where he'd just come in and lay out for us what our water quality is. That's not what happened at all. He came in and did this whole thing where basically his entire premise was your water is terrible. Uh, he did all these chemical tests to prove that our water was awful, awful water. And man, my you can't sell me face was working overtime the whole time. 
even to the point where my kids were asking me, Daddy, are you okay? And I'd be like, maybe, son, maybe. Um, And eventually, he gets to the bad news. He was trying to sell us a $9,000 water purification system. And as soon as he said what it was, because I just kept asking him, I was like, all right, so what's this gonna, what is the price? What is it going to cost? What is it going to do? Finally, he told us, and I laughed really loudly, and you could see his face move from, I think I've got a sale, to, I better just pick up my stuff and leave, because there was no way we were going to buy a $9,000 water purifying system. Uh, it just didn't work out. I cannot, it is really, really tough to sell me something that I didn't initially want. There's another thing that's really hard to sell me on, and this is kind of what we're going to get into today. It's really hard to sell me on uh, the idea, because I've heard this being preached from many, many different stages and from many, many different types of preachers and pastors and just people, that following God is actually pretty easy. I've heard that a lot. And there have been times that I've bought into it, probably when I was younger, And there's a version of this story of Joshua in the Battle of Jericho that makes following God sound like this formula that if you do what God says, he'll do everything that you want. And the truth is, it's not like that. Following God is not easy. I can't buy that. Because honestly, guys, the truth is following God is difficult, it's dangerous, and it often requires you to do things that seem completely ridiculous and the exact opposite of what seems logical at the time. So today, we're looking at the story of Joshua, and I want to ask the same questions that the Israelites kept on asking as they traveled from Egypt through the desert and the wilderness into the promised land. They kept asking these same questions, and it was this, why are we doing this? What is the point? Can't we just go back? So as we look at this story today, that's the question that I want to kind of ring in our ears. Why even do this? Why? So if we're talking about Joshua and his battle of Jericho, first we've got to look a little bit of who Joshua was. Uh, so really, his name was Hosea, but Moses gave him this name of Joshua. We saw that in Numbers 13, and Moses called Hosea, son of Nun, Joshua. So Moses gave him this name. What do we know about Joshua? Not a great deal, um, but we do know some things. Like Uh, For example, we know he was a warrior from the tribe of Ephraim, a descendant of Joseph, which when you think about it, makes a lot of sense that it was Joseph who brought Israel out of the land of Canaan and into Egypt. So it seems like it would make sense that a descendant of Joseph would bring them back into the promised land. God likes to do cool things like that. It's very likely that Joshua fought in the Egyptian army. Josephus, a famous historian, uh, reported that a, tra- a tradition that Joshua once led an Egyptian army against Ethiopia. So we know that he was a, a soldier of some kind. And when, it came, when they came out of Egypt, likely because of his family line and his success as a soldier in Egypt, Moses made him his sort of personal assistant, his right-hand man as they, as they traveled And when the Amalekite army came against Israel, basically right after they came out of Egypt, Moses gave Joshua the the, the job of picking out an army to fight against them. This is that battle that you may have heard of where Moses had to keep his arms up, hold his staff up for them to win. This is the army that Joshua led against the Amalekites. And then one quick story before we get into kind of the the present day part of this story. Um, Joshua 
was one of those that was sent out into the promised land of 12, Joshua and a guy named Caleb, and then some other people of the 12 that were sent into the promised land to spy it out. Joshua was one of those. And when they came back, it's an interesting thing that happened is that basically because they wanted to move in, they were almost stoned to death and everything was basically almost flipped upside down. Let's look briefly at this story in Numbers 13 and 14. Um, they spent 40 days. So Moses sent these people out. They're ready to go to the promised land. They have the law. They have everything they need. They're ready to go in. And Moses says, all right, 12 of you guys, go check this out. So they go in. And they spent 40 days in the land of Canaan traveling all throughout it. And what they see is great, great stuff. They see, as the Bible says over and over again, a land flowing with milk and honey, which is just to say that it had everything that they needed. They saw beautiful cities and great landscape, but they also saw big cities with thick walls. They saw Jericho. They saw strong armies with giant, giant men. They saw enemies, and they saw trouble, and they were filled with fear. And so when they came back, this is how they described it. They said in Numbers 13, they said, the land though through which we have gone to spy was a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. That was their takeaway from their 40 days in Canaan, is that it devours its inhabitants. It's an interesting way to describe it. However, Caleb and Joshua did not feel the same way. Caleb was from Judah, and we know Joshua was from Ephraim, and so Caleb grabs the mic and he yells at them, and he says, look, let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are all well able to overcome it. So yes, it's dangerous. There are huge cities with big walls. There are giant men walking around. It's a dangerous place, but Caleb says that doesn't matter. We can take it. We can take it. And after Caleb says that, doesn't seem to make any difference for the people because they go straight to Moses and say their favorite phrase, let's go back to Egypt. If we could really quickly just put ourselves in Moses' shoes, having to hear something like that. This is Moses who traveled to Egypt, rescued these people, brought all these plagues on Egypt to rescue them, watched all of this craziness go on. He's the one that led them through a, an entire sea that was parted through the work of God to bring them through and destroy their enemies. He's the one that's led them. They've got manna. They've got all the water they need. And still, it's not enough. Still not enough for them to think, yes, we can do this. They still want to go back. Putting aside the fact that I don't even think that would work. Going back to Egypt, you just destroyed their entire army. They're not going to let Israel within a mile of their borders. It's not like you could go back. It wouldn't even work. But they keep asking, let's go back to Egypt. And in this particular scene, it gets a little bit more intense. Um, they say this, but then they also say, uh, let's choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They're ready to be done with Moses and Aaron and say, forget you guys, we're firing somebody else that will lead us home because you guys aren't giving us what we want. So this is their plan. They're ready to get rid of them, appoint new leadership. So then Joshua and Caleb step up again and they have more to say. And basically, this is where they come, this is what they're saying. It's a good land. It has everything we need. If God wants us to have it, he will give it to us. Don't rebel against God. Don't fear the people in this land. God has removed his protection from them. The Lord is with us. And it's a great speech. It's a great speech. But Israel's reaction is to begin to pick up stones 
to stone Joshua and Caleb and Moses and Aaron. They have dug their feet into the ground and said, we are not going in there. They don't care what happens. They don't care if they have to go back to Egypt and deal with slavery again. There is no way they are walking into that land. And much like I do with my kids, you kind of let them argue to a point where it gets a little bit too intense. Uh, when we're in the car driving, a lot of times my kids will be arguing about something, and I will let them go to the point where it seems like somebody's about to hit somebody, and then I will step in because I would just love it if they could resolve their own difficulties. In the same way, it seems God is watching this scene, and to the point where finally they start to pick up stones to head towards them, then it says, God's presence appeared at the tent of meeting, and everybody stopped. So it all quit. And they knew that when the, when the tent of meeting was filled with God's presence, they knew that, they, that Moses needed to go in and talk to God. So this is when God makes a pretty big decision. He's with them. Um, he's with Moses, and he's talking, and he says this in Numbers 14. As I live, declares the Lord, what you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. Your, this is where it gets a little rough. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number... Listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land which I swore that I would make you dwell, except Caleb and Joshua. So God's decision after this, after they refuse to obey and follow in, is like, fine, okay, all of the adults here are going to die, and then we'll go. So everyone, it says, who is 20 and up, really rough for the guy whose birthday was that day that turned 20, it seems a little unfair, but what are you going to do? So everyone who's 20 and up, you're going to die. He says it pretty clearly. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. All of those who were old enough to make that, they're going to die. It's not going to work out for them. They will not have what God promised them because they decided that their way was better. So the Israelites wander for 40 years. We've, all, we've, we've known this. We've said it 100 times. They finally get to... The point where everyone in that generation has passed on. The guy whose birthday was on that day to the guy who was 100 when it happened, those guys have all passed away, including our good friend Moses. So after this time, after 40 years, we find ourselves right here again at the edge of the wilderness, leading into the promised land, and Moses is gone, and now God has to appoint a new leader, and let's see who he chose. Um, in Joshua 1 through 9, skipping a couple in the middle. After the, day, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will, I will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. So now it's time to move in. Joshua is their leader. Moses has passed away. 
everyone who was 20 and above is gone, and now the new generation led by Joshua is about to take them in to the land that they were promised. If Joshua will do as God tells him, if Joshua would live in close relationship to the Lord, being responsive and obedient to him, victory was assured. I will give you whatever your foot touches is yours. No man will stand before you. That is the kind of promise Joshua had ringing in his ears as he led the people into Israel. As long as I follow God, nothing will not be given to me that I need. Victory is assured. That's a pretty sweet promise to have. So now here we are. It's 40 years later. Joshua and Caleb are still there, the ones that told the people they could go in. Now they're finally going to go. Forty years after they pleaded with the people to just do it. Forty years after they were almost stoned for doing so. Forty years after Moses first arrived in Egypt to take them home. And forty years after they watched Yahweh part the Red Sea and destroy their enemies. Forty years is a long time. It seems maybe when we read it, because it happens kind of quick, 40 years is maybe not that long, but I mean, I don't know, think about it. 40 years was the 1980s. A lot has changed since then. A lot can happen in 40 years. And as we see in this story, we're going to see how much the Israelites have changed in that time. But first, there's the issue of crossing a very, very big river. The Jordan River stood between them and their land that they were promised. And this is not just regular Jordan River. This is Jordan River that it says was overflowing. And as you look at the story and the history of this, it was an extremely fast current, and it was very dangerous to cross, even without two to three million people. This was a difficult task they had to get through. So does God drop a pile of wood in front and say, here's how to build a bridge? I don't think he does. Does he say, which would have been my particular preference, does he just send them a bunch of elephants to use to cross the river? Because that would have been pretty sweet. He doesn't do any of that. He makes it much, 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 much more simple for them. He just parts the waters again. Now, I want to I stop down on this parting the waters thing because as you look in the story of Scripture as a whole, it's a pretty significant moment every time it happens. Each time God parts the waters for his people, they become completely new on the other side. Look, so when Israel crossed the Red Sea, On the one side, they were slaves fleeing their captors. On the other side, they were free people with no one chasing them. This side, they're slaves trying to get away. On this side, they are completely free and no one's chasing them. Their enemies are gone. When Israel crosses the Jordan, God parts it on this side. They are travelers looking for a home, waiting for a home. And on this side, they are home. They are no longer travelers, but people living in a land that is promised to them. And then several centuries later, we see this happen again. Elijah and Elisha are traveling. Elijah knows that he is about to leave this world. And they go from Jericho to the Jordan River. And as they get to it, Elijah takes off his cloak, touches it, and it parts. And as they go across, when they get across, Elijah was a prophet living on earth. And as they go across, Elijah is taken away. He's gone. And when they come back, Elisha does the same thing. He takes Elijah's cloak, touches the water, and it parts. And as he crosses over, he becomes from Elisha, he becomes the new Elijah with a double portion of his spirit. There is something about crossing through these waters. And as that symbol was seen and remembered for many, many years, it became something very similar to baptism. When we go into the waters, we are one way. When we come up, we are another. And then we flash all the way up to our good friend Jesus in the Jordan River again. 
and he's being baptized by John. He goes down into those waters as Jesus of Nazareth, son of Mary, and when he comes back up again, the Spirit of the Lord rests on him and it heard from the heavens that this is the Son of God. When we go into those waters, we come out different. And it's a beautiful, beautiful image. And Israel is being given this one more time as they cross into the land of Canaan. They don't have to build a bridge. They don't have to work. They don't have to do anything. They just have to cross. They have to follow what God says, and they do, and they make it across, and they build memorials, and they're excited. And now it's time. We've got to deal with Jericho. Now, Jericho, I don't want to talk too much about it because I feel like I could do another 30 minutes just on the importance and the symbolism of Jericho. But it's enough to say that this was the most heavily fortified and easily defendable cities in Canaan. And there's a reason for that. The reason why Jericho was so heavily built and so important because it was a major trade route. When people came across the Jordan from that area, they came to Jericho first, and then they went out through Canaan from there. It was a major, major uh, stop for, for different caravans and all kinds of people that came through Canaan. They stopped at Jericho first, so it had to be easy. It had to be very strong. It had to be difficult to destroy, and it was. These walls were thick. They were tall, and it was extremely well fortified and stocked. And so in conventional warfare, the way that you would take a city like this is you would lay siege to it. You would surround it. You would stop anybody coming in or out so that they can't have any more supplies and they're going to have to just survive on what they've got. And you would maybe mess with it a few times. You would maybe build some catapults and some siege towers. And honestly, taking a city like this in conventional warfare could take months and even years to starve out a city like this and force them to surrender or force them to come out and try to fight you. That would have been the normal way to do it. But of course, God doesn't really care about conventional things. So as they, as they get close to the city, this is one of the most interesting parts of this. Joshua, is, is, he wakes up early and he goes out and he's walking and he meets this man, this, this person, what it looks like. He's, he's dressed to the nines in all of the, the, the dressings of a soldier, of a commander of an army. And he approaches him and he says, are you for us or our enemies? And I love his answer. It's so perfect. His answer is no. He didn't pick a side. He just said, neither. No, I'm not. I am the commander of the Lord's army. Joshua falls on his face, and then he gets the plan. I don't know what Joshua was expecting. I don't know what the people of Israel were expecting, but I can pretty much guarantee that what they got was not what they were expecting. Joshua is given the plan for how they're going to take out Jericho. Now, God could have done anything. Could have done anything. He could have given them the siege towers. He could have shown them a weakness in the wall. He could have given them M16s and rocket launchers, for all we know. He could have given them anything they needed. Any number of things could have been given to them to show them how to take out this city. But instead, God chose to carry the heaviest part of this load for them. And he said, just march. Joshua 6, 3. You shall march around the city. All the men of war going around the city once. This you shall do for six days. That's the whole plan. Just march. And when I look at it, I mean, I don't know. It's so ridiculous. It's kind of like if you're playing football and in the huddle, the guy's like, all right, we're going to get out there and we're going to say hike and then just give him the ball. Just, just give it to him and see what happens. It doesn't make any sense. Or maybe you're in a, in a drum line and you're about to go play this really awesome song. And the guy's like, all right, we're going to go out there and you're going to leave your sticks behind. We don't need them this time. 
Or maybe you go in, you, have this, you get this opportunity to go on Shark Tank, right? That awesome show where you get to pitch your idea. And God says, all right, you're going to go out there. It's going to be awesome. And you're not, I'm not going to, don't bring anything. Just don't, you, no presentation, no, no display, nothing to give them. Just, just go up there. We'll figure it out. That's what it feels like to me. There is no plan. The plan is March. That's not a plan. That's not a plan at all. That's just a parade. Your plan is to do a parade. This is going to take down the most difficult city to take in the entire land of... You just, just march. It's insane. It's ridiculous. It's illogical. It makes no sense. Fortunately, God had one extra thing that they get to do. Not only do they march, but on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times. And the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people will shout, and the wall of the city will fall down. I just can't even imagine how Joshua felt when he heard these things. Confused? I don't know. I don't know where he was, but for me, I can't imagine this plan. But this is what they do. And here's the crazy thing. The crazy thing to me is... Yes, the plan is crazy, but what's even crazier is they just did it. Nobody raised their hand like, are you sure? Nobody had any complaints. Nobody was grumbling. They just did it. Now, the Israelites 40 years ago would have never done this. They wouldn't even enter the land, let alone march around a city that looked like it could destroy them. Something changed in them. Over this 40 years as they wandered, Something changed. After 40 years of watching that older generation pass on in the desert and God delivering them over and over again, something finally seems to have clicked with these people. Their hearts had changed. They obeyed, and because they did, God came through for them. It's not easy to follow God. He tends to take us to very strange and often dangerous places. But Israel obeyed. They followed this ridiculous, dangerous, and outright foolish plan. And because they did, God carried the heavy load of taking down the walls. He could have shown them how to blow it up. He could have given them siege towers. He could have made them into giants that just stomped on the city. But instead, he just went ahead and did it for them. Just like when, when Jesus asked Peter to step out of a boat and to walk on water, that made no sense. It was dangerous, it was foolish, but it happened. When Jesus asked his disciples to pass out only a few loaves and a couple fish, it made no sense. He was asking them to do something foolish and impossible. Over and over again, God has shown us that if we will simply follow him, he will lead us where we never thought we could go. So now I have to ask our question again. Why do we go through this? Why do we even bother? Why didn't we just go back? In Egypt, they had plenty of food. They lived in a good land. They, they may have had to work really hard to build up another nation, but at least they knew what each day would bring, and they'd pretty much grown used to it at that point. And for us, wouldn't it just be easier to forget about all this Christianity stuff, this putting others' needs before our own, this loving our enemies stuff, this being humble and repenting of our sins, taking up our cross daily? Wouldn't it just be easier to not? Wouldn't it just be simpler to just say, that's cool, but I'm going to do what makes sense for me? Why do we even bother? 
I don't know. The truth is, I think, if we go where we want to go, we usually don't get what we really want. If we do what we want, it usually doesn't work out. But if we follow where God leads us, God will be with us, and he will carry the heaviest of the load. Israel followed God out of Egypt, and because they trusted and followed, God led them through the Red Sea on dry ground and destroyed their enemies. God provided them with food and water. He protected them, gave them a law to live by, gave them a tabernacle where his presence could dwell among them. He delivered them from the hands of their enemies over and over again. He parted the river. He brought down the walls of Jericho, and he gave them a nation filled with fields they did not sow, livestock they did not rear up, cities they did not build. He gave it all to them. And finally, after all other gifts and blessings were exhausted, his people still rejected him over and over again. And because of that, he gave us himself. He gave us Jesus. And in Jesus, God, through our disobedience, requiring us to do nothing but crucify his son, gave us access to eternal life. He used our own sinful nature to save us. He bore the load of salvation on his shoulders and carried us into redemption. He parted the sea, carried the people across, and tore down the wall of Jericho so that we might cross into the promised land, only having to follow, believe, and love the one who saved us. We are the heirs of unmerited grace. We reap fields we did not sow. We inhabit dwellings that we did not build. And God has provided for us at every turn. And all we have to do is follow him as he leads us through. A couple things that Jesus said really stick with me on this issue. Matthew 6, 33, he says, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Follow me, and I'll take care of you. In, in chapter 11, 28 to 30, he's Matthew again, he says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He wants to take care of us. He wants to provide for us. He wants to give us what we need. He did all the heavy lifting of salvation, and all we have to do is love and follow him, listen to his voice, go where he calls us, do as he asks of us. He's done all the hard work. He has carried the heaviest of the load. And see, we might think that when we hear that, when he says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light, that if I follow Jesus, everything will be easy. And that's probably where people get that idea. We probably think that if I follow Jesus, everything will be easy, but it's just not true. Joshua can tell you that. Moses can certainly tell you that. His life would have been much simpler if he had just ignored that burning bush and stayed in the desert and lived his life peacefully and calmly. His life would have been much easier. The truth is the heaviest part of the load is not healing us from disease, defeating our enemies, carrying all of these things, taking trouble out of our lives. That's not the heaviest part of the load. The heaviest of the load is the changing of our hearts. That's something you can't do yourself. The Israelites couldn't part the river, tear down the walls of Jericho, throw their enemies into chaos, bring fire down from onto altars from the heavens. They couldn't do those things. 
We can't change our hearts. We can't cause God to inhabit us as he did the tabernacle. He, we can't do those things. But if we follow God, if we believe in what he's told us, he will carry the heaviest of that load and he will do those things for us, those things that we truly need. A heart changed that it follows him instead of our own desires, a heart that loves people despite what they do to us. We just can't create that in ourselves. Following God is not a guarantee that he will solve all of your problems, but rather that he will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. We just have to follow, love, trust this God who's done everything for us. And if we can do that, he will continue to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. So whatever your Jericho is that's standing in front of you, whatever it is, your river that you might need to get across, stop waiting for the instructions on how to do it. Stop waiting for the conventional way. Trust in God and he will lead you through and he will defeat what you need defeated in a way that you did not expect. He will carry the heaviest of our loads of changing our hearts, bringing us salvation, making us more like him.